Coach Considerations from the UKSCA Views and Opinions from the World of Strength and Conditioning I just want to start by thanking Andy and of course you guys for my invitation. Um, it's quite a high podium this one, isn't it? Might have to do this one on my tiptoes. Um, I do have a lot to get through today, so I'll start just by saying that although I work for lots of different sporting organisations, um, I don't feel like I have any conflicts of interest to declare. Um, I'm nothing if not opinionated, um, so the opinions are, are definitely my own. And this is our, our shiny glass box that we have in Manchester, so you're more than welcome to come and visit us at the Institute of Sport if you want to do so. And just for the purpose of today, I'm talking about cisgender women. So I'm talking about ovarian hormones in the most part. Um, and so I'm going to use the word woman as a noun and female as an adjective. So I think it's just important that I clarify the words and the language that I'm using. Right. So I was asked to talk about the female lens and I've already given it away because I do that. Um, I'm really interested in ovarian hormones. That's the lens that, I'm, that I look through and that I'm going to look through today. But of course, that's not to say that others that are, of you that are sat there might look at it from a biomechanical perspective, anatomical, sociological, and so on. And whilst I'll try and sort of incorporate other little sort of examples, it's just to say that this is my lens. And of course, it would be one of the biggest differences, of course, between male and female athletes. But I just wanted to contextualize that for you. Now, you might have detected an accent. I really am on my tiptoes, by the way. If I fall over, that's what happened. Um, you might have detected an accent. So I've got a lot to get through today. I am Irish, don't be alarmed. And I can speak very quickly. Um, I'm just wondering if there are any other Irish people in the audience? A few. So if I start to talk so quickly that even you don't understand me, give me a wave. Okay, otherwise everybody's just going to have to hopefully play along. Um, yeah, so lots of things to get through over the next half hour or so. Um, I'm guessing that some of you will be familiar with some of this content. It might be new to others. Um, and so obviously I'll try and pitch it at a level that's hopefully interesting for everybody. I think it's always a good place to start just to sort of give you a sense of the language I'm using and sort of the common, you know, endocrinology involved with female athletes. Um, always a good place to start. But then to go through maybe how you might start to monitor these ovarian hormone profiles in your athletes and what impact they might have on performance. Now, again, performance is a really wide and vague term. So I'll give you my perspective. But of course, please do feel free to ask from your point of view. I'll just briefly try and sort of give you a sense of how you incorporate these things into practice. So talking a little bit about individual approaches versus a blanket approach and how you might as a coach start to interact if you're not already with your female athletes on this topic. Um, yeah, so I'll do some, put in some guidance, some signposting, but overall there's a fair bit of content and, and please do feel free to ask as many questions as you want at the end. So this is the bit, this is sort of like the biology lesson. Sorry, it might be a bit tough going, as I say, in this sort of post-lunch dip. Um, but I think it's just important to make it clear when we're talking about menstrual cycles, what we're actually talking about. So it does drive me a little bit mad in the media when uh, journalists use menstrual cycles and the word periods or menstruation as if they're all the same thing. Um, now, I'm sure you already know this, but you know if you're talking about an athlete's period or when they're menstruating or menses, that's just a few days when they're bleeding. All of the other days need to be added on, and those two things collectively are the menstrual cycle. So the menstrual cycle is a repeating pattern of fluctuations in endogenous estrogen and progesterone. 
You'll notice I've said endogenous estrogen and progesterone, so obviously estrogen and progesterone produced by the ovaries, because when we come on to talk about some of the other profiles, we'll be talking about exogenous ones, so just important to make that clarification. So what you're looking at here are changes in estrogen and progesterone over time. You'll notice there are no numbers on this figure, okay, and that's intentional. Usually we would put the first day as day one, and then we would put 28 days to denote the end of the cycle. We do that and then we'll verbalize and we'll say, well, it can be quite different between um, individuals and it can be anywhere between 21 and 35 days. But people just see 28. Athletes just see 28. And they'll wait for me at the end of the talk and they'll say, I have a 25 day menstrual cycle, am I okay? Or I have a 32 day one, am I okay? And the answer is yes. So actually this flat diagram is in a way really unhelpful and not so useful. We really want almost like a dynamic diagram that as I'm talking here, it can move in and out. So for shorter cycles, obviously everything will be truncated and for longer cycles, everything will be elongated. So that could say anything from 21 to 35 days and still be considered normal, okay? I will talk about longer and shorter cycles in just a moment, but 21 to 35 is normal. Day one is the first day of the cycle, as I said, and it's the day that your athlete starts bleeding, okay? It's a really obvious thing. And in the past, I would say that we've really over-relied on menstruation as a marker of menstrual health. We said, you know, if you menstruate, you've got a menstrual cycle. That's not true, okay? And I'm gonna show you here why, and then I'm gonna show you what it looks like when some of these things are missing, and we would say that your athlete might have menstrual dysfunction. Okay, so phase one, you can see the estrogen and progesterone are low. Estrogen is the solid black line, and progesterone is the long dashed line. Okay, so phase one, they're bleeding, both hormones are low, and that's just really the easy phase for us to work with. Phase two, you can see, is characterized by really high estrogen, but low progesterone. And then phase four is characterized by really high progesterone and a secondary sort of medium concentration of estrogen. And if we sort of skip to, I guess, the fun and interesting part, if we're interested in if these ovarian hormones affect performance or nutrition or anything, recovery, whatever you're interested in, then we might guess that these outcome measures would change between phase one, phase two, and phase four at the very least, okay? So if you're thinking about looking at the effects of menstrual cycle phases on the outcome of your choice, then I would try and probably do some measurements in those three phases, okay? How do you find out when phase two occurs and when phase four occurs? Okay, so this is what you need to do. Quite simple, get your athletes to tell you the day they start bleeding, okay? And I'm just assuming that you guys have got great relationship with your athletes. This is not a taboo subject. This is the same as asking them, what do they have for breakfast? How long did they sleep last night? It's fine. In the main, I've yet to meet a female athlete who doesn't want to talk about this, okay? I know you're all sitting there looking at me going, but you're a woman. I've yet to meet a male practitioner who, when approaches this topic well, has had any problems, okay? So we just need to normalize these conversations. So ask them when they get their period, and then ask them the next time, and then you can work out cycle length. And if it's anywhere between 21 and 35 days, that's good. The next thing you need to do is find out if they're ovulating, okay? Because outside of bleeding, all of the other days, how do you navigate those, okay? So if they ovulate, that's 
just the day, well, about 24 to 36 hours prior to that peak in estrogen. Okay, so that would give you that phase two that we were interested in. It's very easy if you want to find out if they're ovulating, you can buy urinary ovulation detection kits. They're exactly as you might think they are. They we on the stick, it's very scientific. Um, and it gives them a smiley face. It's very easy to use. You get a smiley face on the day that they ovulate. And if they've ovulated, then you can be sure that they've got that phase two peak in estrogen. So that's really, really useful. The other useful thing about the urinary ovulation detection kits are that they help you navigate to phase four, okay, with that high progesterone. So seven days, give or take, so it could be on day six, seven or eight, post ovulation, and that's when you wanna take a blood sample and measure the concentration of progesterone in that one. I know not all athletes like a blood sample, but that's really at the moment the only way to do it. We can, of course, look into other measures like saliva and urine, but if you're asking me for the best way to do it, a blood sample, measure progesterone. If it's above the threshold of 16, everything is fine. If it's not, then there could be an issue. Okay, and then doing those three things means that all the time, every day of the cycle, you've got a good sense of where your athlete is, okay? I'm just gonna throw it out there straight away. There isn't an app right now that does this for you, okay? And we can come back to that if people have got questions about apps. So this is what you have to do. It's a bit blue peacher. I like to use a calendar or a notebook and a bit of WhatsApp and a blood sample, and it all works together really nicely. And believe it or not, this is the gold standard way to do it. I would say that if you are tracking menstrual cycle phases, if you are interested in the potential of these phases on your outcome, then I would also make sure that you track their lived experiences. So what I mean by that is, I would ask them how did they feel on any given day? Because of course, we're thinking about is there a biological pathway, say between high estrogen and ACL injuries? But what about asking how do you feel? Because as these hormones change, it can also change their mood, their emotions. And so for example, at a particular phase, if an athlete routinely takes a dip in confidence or feels angry or fatigued. We need to understand is it the biological pathway or this sort of more indirect perceptional pathway that might be having the impact. So I think it's really important that you ask them how they are and how they feel because those things may also have a cyclical effect. So that's how you track menstrual cycle phases. I'm just gonna show you now why it's really important that you do this. And again, maybe just coming back to this sense of, you know, many of you might be sat there thinking, oh, my athletes use an app, so everything is good. So this is a busy slide, but actually I think you should be able to navigate it quite quickly and easily. The ovulatory picture that you see behind me is the one that I've just shown you, but just with different colors. So this time you've got estrogen in red and progesterone in blue, okay? And it really is, spot the difference. So as you move through these, try and see before I say it if you can spot the difference. So next to it we've got LPD which stands for luteal phase deficiency. Anybody see it? So always make the ovulatory your reference point. The blue line is different. You don't have that phase four peak in progesterone. So if you're not tracking in the way I just mentioned, you're not going to know. Your athlete's not going to walk around going, yeah I'm not peaking my progesterone today. There's no other way of knowing if you don't measure it. And of course, if they do have luteal phase deficiency, they have a significantly different hormonal profile. So if you're talking about, oh, I wonder if different phases of the menstrual cycle affect performance or recovery or whatever it might be, you won't be able to use that same sort of menstrual cycle picture. It's a different picture. If you look at the picture next to it, okay, this time you're looking at the red line, okay? So estrogen is significantly different here because these athletes are not ovulating. Again, not walking around going, 
not sure if I'm ovulating today, okay? So this is again why we use those urinary ovulation detection kits. And you'll see it's not just the red line that's different, it also makes the other hormones wobble as well, okay? And both with the teal phase deficiency and anovulatory cycles, okay, they're hidden types of menstrual dysfunction. If you look at the little red arrows, this shows that your athlete is still bleeding at a regular, on a regular basis. So they have cycles of 21 to 35 days. So therefore we shouldn't over rely on just bleeding as a marker of menstrual health. Okay, so two types of hidden menstrual dysfunction. If you then look at oligomenorrhea, so you're looking at the pictures that are upwards, oligomenorrhea, great word to spell and say in public. It's just a really fancy way of saying cycles that are longer than 35 days, okay? So this one is not so much hidden because an athlete should be able to tell if they're tracking how long their cycle is. So when the cycle goes beyond 35 days, you're starting to lean into more severe menstrual dysfunction. Now you can see above, you can still ovulate and have longer cycles, but you can also have longer cycles where you don't ovulate. And if you look at that anovulatory picture in the oligomenorrheic cycle, that's chaos. There are no menstrual cycle phases there. The two hormones are chaotic and sporadic, and so there's no really way of helping you or your athlete navigate through that space. Now, if you drop back down to amenorrhea, that's probably the term that you're most familiar with, the type of menstrual dysfunction you've heard the most about. We hear about it in female athlete triad, relative energy deficiency in sport, and that's the picture. And this is the first picture where they're not bleeding, okay? So if your practice is based on whether they bleed or not, you're missing out lots of different steps. And interestingly, we always say that amenorrhea is like the early warning detection system for things like REDS or the female athlete triad. Your athlete will transition through luteal phase deficiency and ovulation and oligomenorrheic cycles before they become amenorrheic. So actually, we can look at this and if we're tracking routinely, we can get ahead of amenorrhea. Okay, so maybe a little bit of an over-reliance on amenorrhea and we can move towards that. Make sense? Just to point out that I've shown you what uh, one, two, three, three or four types of menstrual dysfunction um, and so far the menstrual cycle. There are probably about 50 different profiles I could show you, but these are the ones that are most common in elite sports. So if you've got anything, any other sort of uh, profiles you wanna discuss, hopefully I might know a few more um, and can give you some more detail. And if you do have an athlete, once you've been tracking them, that you see any of these types of dysfunction, then of course we need to signpost them to, um, in the first instance, a medical professional, because of course we really under want to understand what's driving that dysfunction. As I say, we often in sport link it instantly to low energy availability, but there are many, many other reasons why these might occur, so it's really important that they go to a medical professional. Okay, and then if we know what's causing it, then I think there are other people in the room, some practitioners maybe here, nutrition, psychology, and so on. They can play a part in trying to reverse these types of menstrual dysfunction. And the good news is that they are reversible. Okay, so that's really quite important. Now the third group that I just wanna give you a whistle sort of top, stop tour with are your hormonal contraceptive using athletes. Okay, so in the main, I'm guessing that most of your athletes are post-pubertal and maybe pre-menopause. And again, if anybody's working with menopausal athletes or those maybe in early puberty, I'm more than happy to talk a little bit about that at the end if you need to. But in the main, in adulthood, we tend to see our athletes either sort of falling into menstrual cycle, menstrual dysfunction, or hormonal contraceptive users. Now, here's where it gets just maybe a little bit more complicated if we weren't already a little bit overwhelmed. So, 
hormonal contraceptives are designed to prevent pregnancy in the main. We sort of forget that sometimes within sport, we tend to think that they're a way to manipulate menstrual cycles. So what they do in general, and there are some exceptions, but I think the take home top level message is, is that they blunt the menstrual cycle. They change the menstrual cycle, okay? They don't want you to ovulate because ovulation leads to pregnancy. So in the main, you can assume that hormonal contraceptive users have down-regulated endogenous estrogen and progesterone, okay? A little bit like what we saw in that amenorrheic picture. But, don't fall asleep right now, this is the important part. They also have a synchronous exogenous profile. So for example, if you have an athlete who takes the oral contraceptive pill, pop the pill in your mouth, within that pill are exogenous types of estrogen and progestogen, so synthetic hormones. As they take the pill, within an hour, that exogenous concentration peaks in the bloodstream, then sort of dips out throughout the day, they take it the next day, and so on. So that's that first picture that you can see. So they have down-regulated endogenous, but they have an overlay of exogenous. Fun fact, exogenous hormones can often be more potent than endogenous ones. So again, thinking about that question of whether these hormones affect performance or recovery or whatever it is that you're interested in, if you wanna test that out on your oral contraceptive pill user, you might test her, whatever that outcome might be, on a pill-taking day when she's got that exogenous supplementation versus the pill-free days. Okay, makes sense? Of course, we have lots of different types of hormonal contraceptives. The good news is oral contraceptives do tend to be the most popular, so they're quite easy to work with. Predominantly 21 pill-taking days and seven pill-free days. Just to note, as we're talking maybe a little bit more later on about sort of coaching culture and, and the health of our athletes, many athletes decide purposefully not to take the seven pill-free days, okay, because that's when they see or experience their withdrawal bleed. Speaking about common language and that sort of specificity of language, they don't get their period in the seven pill-free days. The word period, the word menstruation or menses is exclusively for menstrual cycle. It's a bleed that occurs for all of those different hormonal changes from the lining of the womb getting thicker, getting ready for pregnancy. In hormonal contraceptive users, it's a withdrawal bleed. They bleed because you've taken away the exogenous hormone. I know they're both bleeding and it seems a bit pedantic, but actually by not using the correct words, we actually confuse the athletes themselves. So a few years ago, we did a questionnaire study and we said, fill out section A if you're menstrual cycle, fill out question, um, section B if you use hormonal contraceptives. And it was amazing the number of athletes, elite athletes, who filled out both sections. Now it's impossible to be both. You cannot have a menstrual cycle and be a hormonal contraceptive user. And so we had to sort of backtrack and think, why is it that you know, what seemed very obvious to us was not obvious to them? And they did what most people do. They took a look at the other sort of section. So I was filling out the pill section, I had a look at the other one, and I saw the word period. And I was like, oh, well, I, not me, but for example, I get my period when I take my seven pill-free days. And that's why they filled out both, because we're using the wrong terms. So it's really important that we talk about withdrawal bleeds here. So as I say, there are a number of different types of hormonal contraceptives. I've just shown you a few here. So for example, if you get the injection, the exogenous concentration peaks really quickly over the sort of days um, straight after that, and then it wanes over time. When it gets to a critical point, of course, when it gets so low, they need to have their next injection, or otherwise they wouldn't be covered from a contraceptive purpose. So. Just to keep in your mind, when you're working with athletes, predominantly um, female sort of um, uh, adult um, athletes, these are the type of profiles that they will experience. 
Right. In terms of tracking um, hormonal contraceptive users, you can decide whether or not you want to track them. It is different, of course, than uh, during the menstrual cycle. The only really way to do this is a blood sample. And so if you take a blood sample, you can measure both the endogenous concentrations and the exogenous ones. But I think you really need to think carefully about what the benefit of that is. So mostly when we're talking about tracking within this space, we are talking about menstrual cycles. And again, we can have a sort of conversation around how often we should track. I don't think that female athletes need to track all the time, every day, every cycle, but you might want to work it into your calendar. So maybe it's worth, you know, establishing a profile at the start of the year or the season, and then maybe checking in at one other time in the next sort of 12 months. So lots of things to consider. But I just wanted to show you this visual just as a really sort of take home message. And it sort of lends itself to whether or not you should take an individual or a group approach. Now, this is a real football team, clearly obviously a graphical representation, but this is a team that we went in to work with. And the coach really wanted to do menstrual cycle phase-based training, okay? And so we were like, oh, so all of your players have got a menstrual cycle. And he's like, well, sure they do, because they're women. And so there's the first myth, not all women have a menstrual cycle. Clearly, I've just shown you that. And so we went about sort of asking them different questions. And this is just self-report. This is without doing sort of too much uh, work with them. And we were able to tell him, much to his surprise, that in fact he probably had two athletes who had a fully healthy menstrual cycle, and all of his other players, his starting 11, had a different ovarian hormone profile. So really, I think it is very difficult to take a group approach here. I do think you have to sort of maybe approach this more on an individual level. Right, so here we get to the crux of the thing. How did these hormones affect? whatever it is that you're interested in. And I keep saying that because actually the answer is the same for everything, but I'll, I'll get to that in just a second. Now I'm able to move through this section quite quickly and it'll become obvious why in a second. So the first thing is to show you um, how much research routinely or in the past has been conducted exclusively on female athletes. And again, if you can get your eye there very quickly, it's in bold for you. A recent audit of research um, in sport and exercise science, looking at you know, who was tested, whether that was male only, a mixed cohort or female only, only 6% okay, of research has been focused exclusively on female athletes. So it is really, really hard to learn from such a small amount of research, okay? So that's the first thing. We don't have a lot of it. By virtue of the fact that I'm stood here and I'm everywhere, <laughs> it's a bit embarrassing. But it's great because in a way it shows that everybody's really interested now. But of course, it's one thing to be interested, but we have to make sure that the research you know, picks up a little bit of momentum and, and pace. And so, what makes it even worse is the fact that we don't have a lot. And when we've gone to look back on, okay, well, let's access that 6%. Okay, and maybe let's throw in the research question, how do different menstrual cycle phases affect performance? And I'll, I'll come back to what performance is in just a second. So that's exactly what we did. We went back, we accessed those papers, and I know that text is really quite small, but what you want to focus on is the fact that it says 8% of that literature was high quality. I think I really need to say that again. There's not a lot of it, and only 8% is high quality. I'm going to put myself in the line here and do quick math. 92%, if you want to look at it the other way, is not great. Okay, so 92% of the 6% is not great. So how are you meant to go to your athletes and take an evidence-based approach? 
we are really down to a handful of papers now. And actually the handful of papers that we have that are high quality are not all assessing the same thing. So let's just kick maybe performance around. What is performance? If I asked each one of you, you'd probably give me a slightly different definition. For the purposes of this systematic review meta-analysis, we focused in, I think, it's fair to say more on determinants of performance. So there were some strength measures in there, there were some endurance measures, and there was an occasional performance test, okay? But we really stretched that definition, okay? And the other thing to note here is that in this systematic review meta-analysis, we're not talking about elite athletes here as the participants. So you have 6% in women, 8% of it high quality, and these are not elite athletes. So when you come here and you say, tell us what you know, I could just stand up and say nothing and sit down again, okay? But I don't do that because, you know, you have to earn your living. <laughs> right, think about it in a slightly different way. I said that um, when you're working with female adult, adults, they're not all sort of menstrual cycle um, models. So we also looked at the same research question, but substituted menstrual cycle phase for oral contraceptives. Okay, so again, thinking about a large proportion of the athletes you might work with. Here, the good news is that 17% were high quality, but just to give you a sense in terms of study numbers, there were less studies performed in oral contraceptive users. So we've got a little bit more information around oral contraceptive users, just because there's a lot of predictability with the pill user, right? So it makes it easier, or makes them easier to research in comparison to menstrual cycle phases, which are largely quite unpredictable. So a little bit sort of of a, of a different landscape there. Um, just in case, as I switch to this slide, you say, hang on a minute, but you didn't give us one on menstrual dysfunction. We didn't do a systematic review meta-analysis on menstrual dysfunction because we don't have enough papers to do so. So again, thinking about your athletes, if you're going to categorize them into three groups, we know very little about menstrual cycle phases, a little bit more maybe about oral contraceptive use, and almost nothing about menstrual dysfunction. So we really are scraping the bottom of the barrel. And it's embarrassing, right, because it's 2023. And so we joke, and it's in really bad taste, that female athletes were just discovered in the last Olympic cycle. That's sort of how it feels. So we need to do much better. Of course, you want the answer to the question, and, and here are the sort of really top-level findings. So it reiterates it's a small amount of research that we're basing these conclusions on, and that the you know predominantly sort of very low, low and moderate quality. So we don't have a lot of confidence in these findings. And rather than read all of that, I'm just going to verbalise what I think we know. Nothing. Sod all. I didn't swear. Okay, we know very little. And so what we've concluded for both of these papers of course, is we need to do more research, it needs to be higher quality, but what we can say at the moment is when we look at the findings from these studies, the findings are highly variable, okay? So again, leaning in towards that concept and notion that we have to take an individual approach rather than a group level approach here, okay? This just sort of winds me up a little bit. I can't really give a talk without ranting just a little bit. These papers were published, I think, really literally within days, if not hours, of each other. One on menstrual cycle, one on oral contraceptive pills. And on average, and I don't think I've updated this in a while, but every time I go back to update it, it never changes. On average, the menstrual cycle paper is accessed at least twice more often than the oral contraceptive pill one. So it really shows me that bias that we have. If you work with female athletes, they all have menstrual cycles. That seems to be the take home, both at a practical point of view, but also at a research point of view. I really don't understand how they don't get access to an equal amount, okay? And I'm really concerned that nobody's ever written to me and said, where are the menstrual dysfunction ones, 
Okay, so we do have this bias in our mind. So actually, as I say, I could have saved you 35 minutes by starting with this slide. There is currently, okay, so right now, and I promise I will change my mind and I will change my presentation if this changes, but right now there's insufficient high quality evidence to guide female athletes on any topic, whether that's the response to training, performance, whatever that might be, nutritional strategies, recovery, insert whatever you like there. Okay, I challenge you to throw an outcome at me where I would have to change that slide for. And it seems like a really bad thing to say, and it is in so many ways. But just to be, I guess, just to flip it slightly, the good news here is that if we don't have very established phase-based changes, this gives you the freedom. This gives your athletes the freedom, okay? So right now, they don't have to tailor their training programs towards menstrual cycle phases. They can continue to you know, program how you want them to based on whatever it is, the other good science that we have around them. So it does come, I think, with a little bit of freedom, which is important to note. So we do need to do better. We need to do more. We would like to have some evidence, um, and who knows what that evidence will be. But while we wait for that, at least from a research and academic perspective, I do think it gives our athletes and our practitioners a little bit of freedom in this space. Just to sort of further hammer home one point, and again, I'll try not to get a little ranty. Um, maybe this goes back to my, my football coach. The one thing outside of or on top of the assumption that all you know, sport women have menstrual cycles, um, and that all women are affected by their menstrual cycles. The next one is we should do menstrual cycle phase-based training, okay? Because for sure, if you look this up, you will find some studies that say that you should, okay? And again, not being rude in any way because the people who do these studies and write these studies and conduct these studies are very well-intentioned people really trying to kick on the area. But we have reviewed those studies. We have looked at them every which way. And what we can say is there's not enough of them and they're not good enough to make that recommendation. So again, just to be really clear, because this one is close to, as a musculoskeletal physiologist, this one is quite close to my heart. You do not need to adopt menstrual cycle phase-based training, even if you find one or two papers that tell you that you should, okay? We have done the hard work for you. That is not what we would recommend. A couple of interesting things just as I start to wrap up is we need to think as well, you know, if we're looking at the effects of or possible effects of ovarian hormones on performance or training or whatever it might be, we need to find a way to identify who's affected and who's not, because we know it's not gonna be a blanket response. That is what we have learned from the current evidence. It's so highly variable. So how do we go about finding out which of our athletes is affected and which isn't. Okay, I was really lucky enough to work with, I think arguably one of the best female football players in the world. And she sat with me and she said, I'm not affected by my menstrual cycle at all. And actually my club is really starting to annoy me because they keep forcing this issue. And she's like, I'm not affected. It doesn't matter what day I'm on, I, I don't have any effects. And that's great. And she knew herself. She had such a high level of body literacy. She was able to say that. And then she feeds that back to her coach, to her practitioners, the people that she's working with. Hopefully they listen and don't bring in their own bias. But how do we go about making sure our athletes have that level of certainty that they know themselves well enough, okay? And that's where I think that tracking piece really comes in. 
establish their profile and then test things at different phases under different conditions, under different profiles and recognize that not everybody will be affected. And even better news, if your athlete's not affected, leave her alone and concentrate on one of the other things that are really integral to sports science. Okay, that's to tell me I've, I've run out of time. Um, okay, so that's one thing we need to get better at identifying. And then even if we say that an athlete is potentially sort of um, affected by her ovarian hormone profile, by how much? So at the moment you're probably hearing or you know, through the media or seeing some studies which are reporting long lists of, for example, menstrual cycle <laughs> symptoms. I have this symptom on this day and it really affects me, okay? There's so much to unpack there, but think about symptom reporting. And I don't have the answer to this. I'm being critical of something and I don't quite know how to fix it. But at what point of the day would you ask your athlete if she had a symptom? If you ask her in the morning, she might experience the symptom later in the day. Okay. If you ask her at the end of the day, it might be difficult to remember when exactly she had a symptom if it was only a transient one. Maybe we need to target more around when they're at training or it's competition day, asking about symptoms then in sort of a more real time. How do we rate severity? Okay, one person's one is another person's five. Okay, so I think we have to get used to, you know, understanding severity within an individual. Then if you ask them, do you think it's affected them? That is a really interesting question. And I would never um, sort of encourage anybody to discount the athlete voice. But I think it's interesting if they say, oh, it really, really affected me. But then to ask their coach or whoever it might be, you know, when you were training with that person today, did you think that they were, you know, not quite 100%? Because I think that's interesting so that we can sort of, again, look at the sort of perceived impact. So yeah, there's a lot to unpick there. How do we report and measure symptoms and how do we use that information? The one thing we want to avoid doing is weaponizing these things. So we don't want to look at menstrual cycle phases or hormonal contraceptive use and overlay symptoms and then say, I'm not selecting you today. That's not the goal here. It's around if somebody is affected, understanding how much and when, and then building in interventions and strategies to mitigate those effects. So that's really what we're working towards. So just quickly to, to sort of bring it all together, I think that although I'm just a physiologist and I, I say I have this very specific lens, I guess I've been fortunate enough to pick up some lessons as I've been working with different sports and different athletes. We do have to work on the culture. I would say that that work is well underway. You know, I think people have really changed their mindsets, but there's more to be done. People love to ask me about white shorts. I don't really want to talk about white shorts, but I want to talk about wherever you train, do you have free menstrual products for your athletes? Okay, can they go into the toilet and get them for free? Things like that, I think, so cultural things. I think we do have to exercise some caution, particularly around the media. I know it makes it sound like I hate the media, but. There's just some wild things out there, some over-interpreted things, some sensationalized things, so just be careful. Also be careful when reading people's papers, including mine, okay? Because as I said, there's some issues with quality and we are trying to develop that. I think this is a community approach. I don't think that each club or organization or sport should employ one person and they become the menstrual coach or the menstrual person or whatever you're gonna call them. I think that all of us should learn in this space, whether you're from nutrition, S&C, the coach, the manager, because I don't think this is something that again, you know, oh, we're talking about it, but only in a really closed way. I think we should open our minds to the you know, potential that these hormones will affect lots of different things. I'll come back to the characteristics in my last slide, but just going back to contraceptive users, they're often overlooked, okay, like that sort of example I gave you. 
there's not too much you can do to change in this space because it's an athlete's right to choose if they're on contraceptive or, uh, or not and, and with type. But I think there are some conversations to be had around. If you do use hormonal contraceptives, do you feel great? Because lots of people are telling us, no, I still have some symptoms. Some, well, they're not really symptoms, are they? They're side effects. And if they have side effects, it's about saying to them, is there a conversation to be had where you change that? Because if you're choosing to do something to yourself, you should probably choose a really good one. Okay, last slide from me. I'm so sorry, I always go on and on and on. Um, it's just to go back to those characteristics. Most common question, should I track and how do I track? Hopefully I've given you a good overview of how to do that. But once you are tracking, for example, maybe menstrual cycle phases, what do you do with that information? So you can call it whatever you like. This is just what we're calling it. We would ask you then to map different metrics over that. So you establish their picture, whatever that picture might look like, remembering it could be shorter or longer, bigger or lower peaks, okay? So we don't have a consistent sort of peak level. You'll remember I didn't have any numbers um, even for hormonal concentrations. So you establish that and then overlay information Put the symptoms against them, okay? I think you're gonna find that, you know, some of your female athletes are listing lots and lots of symptoms, but if you do that over two, three, four months, if there's not a pattern, if those symptoms don't occur regularly in the same phase, they're probably not related to ovarian hormones. Sometimes a headache is not an ovarian hormone headache, it's a dehydration headache, it's a I didn't sleep headache, it's I had four glasses of wine last night headache. So don't overinterpret all symptoms. So map them, is there a pattern? And do that with your, I don't know, jump height or recovery or whatever it might be. So map that information. If at that point you then see a pattern, that's when you're on or bound to do something. Don't do any of this if you can't change anything. And so then the hack is, you know, what interventions are you gonna put in place in order to mitigate any side effects? And remember, World records are set on every day of the menstrual cycle. So look out for good phases. Look out for phases where this, they're reporting, I feel great, I feel confident, I feel strong, you know, all of those things. Because if we constantly put this negative lens on these ovarian hormone profiles, then I think we're really doing a disservice to our athletes. Brilliant. Just checking with the Irish guy. You could still, on good, okay, brilliant. Thank you guys. Oh, my toes hurt now. <laughs> <laughs> you, can, you can move around now. You're mic'd up, so you're okay. Oh, okay. Um, I'm going to rope somebody else in to help me answer questions, and Will is going to be my other one here. So um, let's open it up to the audience. I'm sure there's, there's plenty of questions there. Um, just shove your hand up, and we will get going. If not, I've got one to start us off. Okay. Um, I forgot I was mic'd up, and I could move. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was, I was trying to nudge that. I was like, she's basically been doing an ISO calf hold for, a, for about 45 minutes. I'm trying minutes. to remember what phase I'm yeah. in, so I can see if performance is good or not. So we're, we're fine. Um, who's doing this well? Who, you, you obviously travel around the world at the moment. Who and where are you seeing it being done really well? Okay. So I would say that we are doing it well, the UK. We are. We've got some great researchers um, that are homegrown. Um, and I think our friends, we won't call them rivals, our friends are probably um, the Australians. So again, um, where maybe Australia is slightly beating us, um, not in the World Cup, uh, but where they're slightly beating us is, if you were to Google now the Australian Institute of Sport, um, they've actually developed some really nice female athlete resources. They're free, they've shared them with everybody. And that's something I would say in this space. 
the research, the changes in practice are not around at the moment, you know, marginal gains, you know, uh, marginal gains pushing, you know, competitive advantage. At the moment, women's sport just needs to be upgraded. So it's nice to see something like that happening, a, a transparency and collaboration. So I'd say us, um, the Australians, and then some great researchers as well coming out of America. Um, so people like Tony Hackney, Kate Ackerman, um, I didn't say any names in Australia, so uh, Claire Minahan, uh, Rachel Harris, there's, there's some really great people. And it is difficult, and it sounds really rude to say that you know we have a problem with quality or to be critical of other people's work. I'm just as critical of my own work. I've certainly seen a development in that. But, you know, it's hard. You see a paper, you think, oh, I've read this paper, I want to take this into practice. What I would say to you is, if you want to change your practice, try and find two or even three papers that show similar findings and that you can look at it and go, yeah, I can see easily how they establish this hormonal profile. And again, did they use any of the things we've spoken about today? If they've just gone for, we asked them if they were bleeding and then we did different phases based on a calendar, you now already know that that's not a good sign of quality because they're guessing. You know, if a menstrual cycle is 30 days and you bleed for five, they've guessed the profile of 25 other days. So little things like that. So yeah, there's definitely some good work out, out there. Australia, us and America, I'm gonna go for. Hello, thank you for that. It's really interesting. Um, so some research that I saw recently, and I can't remember who it was, um, looked at um, oral contraceptive use in, in athletes and that they, they, one of the highest percentage reasons was to um, just to control symptoms, etc. But how much do you think, and I don't know if the research is out there on this, those dis dysfunctional patterns and then adverse symptoms within the menstrual cycle, is there any information around that? And then how much work is being done on kind of wider pillars of, of health and well-being to reduce um, symptoms of the, of the menstrual cycle as opposed to then just offering oral contraceptives? Okay, maybe I'll work in reverse order and you might have to remind me of, of some of those. Um, I don't think we're very good at working with our athletes who are non-hormonal contraceptive users. If they're reporting symptoms, it is, as you say, an over-reliance or a tendency to say, just go on the pill. It's an easy, easy fix. I think we need to do way more in this space, okay? So again, no judgment here. If an athlete needs hormonal contraceptive, they need it and, you know, you need to work with that profile. But if they don't need it for hormonal contraception, okay, and if it's to do with symptoms, I think we need to do a piece of work in between there. Can we change anything from a diet perspective and so on and so on? So we do tend to just to go from A to Z without anything in between. And um, I think that's particularly important to do if you're working with adolescent um, uh, sort of teenage girls. I think just switching them straight into hormonal contraceptives is, is a little bit dangerous. Um, I would say that if you look at sort of the endogenous model, so once puberty kicks into the menopause, our female bodies are preset, default setting is menstrual cycle. So anytime we move away from that picture, it's, you know, comes with consequences. So I'm not saying the hormonal contraceptives are bad, but you know, we do have that sort of mindset of if this is what we're meant to be at, can we get back to that? So it could be that an athlete says, I need to go on it to get rid of this symptom, but they only compete for two months. We might say to them, well, in the other months when you're not competing, could you come off that or so on and so on. So I do think that we're bad. We just tend to go from A to Z in, in, one, in one sort of step. Um, yes, I, that, I try to work it into my talk and it's, it's hard to get it all in. 
lots of athletes use hormonal contraceptives just to manipulate their cycles and that makes perfect sense to me um, clearly if you look at me I'm not an elite athlete never been an Olympian but if you were going to the Olympics and I don't know if you were a swimmer and your swimming final you know was on the day that you got your period you probably wouldn't want to be bleeding that day so I get it and again we might say to a particular athlete sure don't menstruate, you know, let's overlay your menstrual cycle so that doesn't happen. A couple of important nuanced pieces of information there. Don't put them on the pill the week before the final because actually they may have worse side effects from going on to something new and that might be worse than actually anything to do with the, the inconvenience of bleeding. Um, and two, when they go on it is about just saying to them, do you need to stay on it? So it, it's that sort of thing. Um, did I get it all? I, thought, I felt like there might have been another bit. No? Okay, sorry. I get into my own head and then I sort of forget that you're here and I'm just talking to me. <laughs> Hi, thanks, that was great. Um, is, I work with uh, young academy girls. Um, is there an age you would start tracking or have this conversation with? Yeah, that's a really clever question. Um, I don't have an exact answer. I think if you're working with athletes who are just hitting puberty or are maybe just in the early portion of puberty, I probably wouldn't track straight away because it can take up to two years for that menstrual cycle to, to become that predictable pattern. Um, so yeah, I think when you work with um, sort of teenage girls, you think, oh, when they start bleeding, that's it, they've got a menstrual cycle. A um, couple of fun facts here. One, they tend to ovulate before they bleed. So we tend to see, you know, bleeding, ovulation, progesterone in this linear fashion. But quite often with teenage girls, if you're a dad of teenage girls, I apologize if that does mean your daughter can get pregnant before before she's ever had her first period. But it's that sort of nuance. If you're gonna try and take this adult model to children, it can be difficult. So I would say, I probably wouldn't do any tracking until they were two years after they've had their first period. Because as I say, it's not linear and it can take a long time for that to settle in. And if you are tracking in that time, they might skip some bleeds, they might you know, skip, they might have anovulatory cycles and that isn't menstrual dysfunction, it's just that pattern sort of resting into place. Um, so I would probably ask them, um, when did they get their first period? And then maybe wait for about two years before I do any of that. So would you recommend maybe they track themselves or their parents? Ooh, that's a tough question. Um, yeah, we, we had this actually in, in uh, an elite sport recently about would it be the athlete or the practitioners, but nobody's ever said about parents or so on. Um, I would probably ease a little bit into it. And, and actually, I should have probably said in answer to your first part, I would be talking about it. I might not be tracking it, but I would be talking about it in, in that space. Um, I, I think they should track it. Um, I do think there are conversations to be had with parents. But I think in the first instance, I get them used to you know, putting an X on the calendar. This is the day I got my period. When I, do I get it the next time? They might also want to mark which day they started and which day they stopped. Um, that's also some useful information. Um, then I think I would take it in a stepwise approach. I would then maybe try with the ovulation kits. And you know, maybe it's, I think they should have ownership over that um, but I think if mum and dad in agreement with the athlete wanted to, to help a little bit with that at least to, to get that up and running um, although it is wean on a stick that can be I've seen many Olympic level athletes struggle with this 
we tend to want it for the first void of the day, but not straight away. So they have to remember to go mid-flow. And they have to hold at a certain angle for a certain amount of time. It could be easier for them just to collect it. So there's a bit of faffing. Um, so yeah, I think they should do it, but probably in collaboration with mum and dad or whoever it is they want to do. And then that blood sample, of course, would be, you know, obviously with a trained phlebotomist and so on, and probably more in a sporting environment. Um, but I think if we can get the next generation just smashing this, having all their, their own knowledge, knowing their own bodies, then I think it will make practitioners and, and sort of sport, you know, I think it will make that a lot easier. But that's just my opinion. Simon, you've, you've taken up most of our time there. So I think, unless you've got one, Will? Okay. Um, hopefully I've understood this right. So you're saying we shouldn't worry about programming according to cycles, but we should obviously be ready to modify a, a session according to what symptoms an athlete's reporting to us. Could you, could you just give us a heads up on um, some of the common symptoms that we may or may not have come across already and, and some, some practical ways that we can adapt a session to make them more comfortable? That'd yeah. be okay. Great, great question, and you have understood it correctly. So again, just to make that differentiation, we're, not, we're saying don't try and do training uh, on menstrual cycle phases based on a biological pathway. So right now we can't say high estrogen does this to muscle or low progesterone does this to endurance. So that sort of direct biological pathway, blood receptors um, output. Where we might need to adapt is exactly as you said, if you've got an athlete who is having phase-based symptoms, so every or most um, cycles sees the same symptoms, then it would make good sense to get ahead of that and let's not dip and, and to do something. Um, most common symptoms tend to be um, abdominal cramps, so, so cramping um, because they're menstruating, but also other sort of leg cramps and, and so on, back pain, headaches. I mean, we've probably gone over 50 different symptoms, right down to, uh, believe it or not, um, psychosis. So some of them are physical symptoms, some of them are more, are more sort of emotional and, and so on. And of course, overlaying then some of that so psychological one, I don't want to bleed when I'm wearing white shorts. So it all sort of fills up into this picture. Um, so yeah, I would think uh, cramps, back pain, headaches, um, anybody in the audience who thinks I'm missing a, a really obvious one, I probably am. But then um, also looking out for dips in confidence are, are quite common, um, increased anxiety, and of course then they have a knock-on effect on maybe how they're sleeping and so on. Um, I'm going to be really honest, you asked me how do we deal with some of these, I don't know. Because you know when I said that sort of uh, track map and then hack, the, the bit there, we are not yet, or, or I'm not, and from a research and, and sort of the practice that I'm involved with, we are not there yet. It has really taken us a long time to develop the tracking and to get athletes to do it. I'll just give you a heads up. People say, we need more research and we really want to do this. And then you ask them, do we on a stick for five consecutive days? And they go, oh yeah, I forgot. Oh, I don't want to. Oh, I'm traveling. So it's taken us a while to develop it and to get them to do it. We're in the point now at the minute of mapping things over it and looking for pattern recognition. So we've not got there yet. 
where I see potential, I definitely see potential from the physios, the nutritionists, and from S&C, because I think they're where we can make meaningful differences about getting ahead of the, some of these symptoms. Oh, and psychology as well. Um, I do work with a, a particular sport where the psychologist is great. A lot of his um, players were seeing, as I say, a dip in confidence um, just in the sort of two days before they start bleeding, and he never lets them go down there. He never lets them go to that dark place, and he's put in a strategy. So I think it's really multidisciplinary. Sorry, it's a bit of a crap answer, but that's the reality where we are right now. Good question.